News. I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 19th, 2016. Coming up, we talk with Carl Zimmer, New York Times columnist on his ongoing excursion into his genome, and local scientist Gia Volt about her pioneering studies of the interior of the cell. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. I'm delighted to speak with author and columnist Carl Zimmer this morning about his trip down DNA Lane, which he blogs about on the biomedical news site STAT. We will link to that on our website. Welcome to How on Earth, Carl. Thanks for having me. Carl, as far as I know, you are one of only a few individuals and the only journalist to acquire your full DNA sequence. Can you briefly explain just what that means? Sure. Um, you know, a lot of people now are familiar with um, getting your DNA sequence from a company like 23andMe or Ancestry.com, and what they do is they kind of take a survey of your DNA. They look at a few hundred thousand spots in your DNA and look at what kind of variants you have there. And that can tell you a whole lot, but the fact is that our genomes are thousands of times bigger. Uh, there are you know, over three billion of these sort of different spots in your DNA, all told. So you know, if you want to see like, everything you've got in your DNA, you have to actually go out and get that whole genome, which is easier said than done. Yeah, that's for sure. And not only do you have to get it, but there's a very complicated process in terms of cleaning it up and analyzing it, and I will refer our listeners to your website description because you did a great job of explaining it in non-technical language. But you found all kinds of really cool bits of information. And last night when I was going through your most recent posting, I was fascinated to read about some of the variants that you found, like the obesity gene. Can you tell us about that? That's amazing. Sure. So it turns out that I have a variant that um, has been very strongly associated with uh, with weight, and I happen to have a variant that makes you um, about three or four pounds heavier on average for each copy you have. I have two, so <laughs> I got I got the uh, bad roll of the dice in that case. Um, but what's really interesting is that scientists have figured out well why is it that that variant uh, makes people gain more weight, and they've actually worked out the, the molecular biology in beautiful detail. Um, and basically, there's a switch in your DNA that causes fat cells to either uh, convert energy into heat or to store it as fat, and my switch is stuck. And, you know, there's a you know, small percentage of Europeans, people of European descent like me, who have the same variant, and, um, you know, maybe someday, now that scientists understand that, that switch, they may be actually be able to develop drugs that go in and, and influence that whole uh, mechanism for people who are really obese, who have serious problems with, with weight. 
And this switching notion is really central to the distinction that you pointed out between getting your full sequence and getting results from something like 23andMe. And that is that these switches are not parts of DNA that we call genes. That's right. So, um, you know, a little high school biology here, like genes we usually think of as things that encode um, proteins. And so, you know, proteins are things like collagen that sort of make up our bodies or, you know, do the hard work in our bodies. Um, but the, the DNA that makes up all your genes, say about 20,000 protein-coding genes, takes up maybe a little over 1% of the whole genome. So there's 98, 99% of your genome that's what scientists call non-coding DNA. A lot of it probably doesn't do anything at all. Um, it's just sort of along for the ride. But some of it uh, has uh, important jobs to do, and it's a real challenge to figure out what are the really essential parts of that 98, 99%. And this genetic switch, which uh, controls how fat cells work, is, is one of those little jewels scattered in that junk. And a really cool thing about this particular switch is, like you said, that scientists have figured out how it works. There's many more of them that they just don't have any idea what they do. Yeah, I mean, the, what you can do uh, for kind of a first step is to look at people with particular conditions. So you can study people's height, or you can study, you know, people who get rare diseases, or you can study, you know, really any trait you want. And then if you get a whole bunch of people with that trait, you can say, okay, do they all share some unusual variant that people who don't have that trait don't have? And that at least can let you zero in um, on, you know, that, that piece of DNA that may be involved in, you know, weight or height or uh, cancer risk. But then, yeah, then the hard work begins of actually trying to figure out what that piece of DNA is actually doing. Exactly. And so for most of us, it probably doesn't make sense to get our full genome sequence, even though the price has come down out of the stratosphere, because there's so much that's unknown. And you had to do a lot of work. Maybe you could just briefly describe some of the interactions you had trying to track down some of this information. Well, uh, once I was able to get my hands on the raw data, I mean, basically what happened was that I, I received a this hard disk in the mail with 70 gigabytes of raw data. And then I went to um, various teams of scientists and said, um, could you show me how you study genomes um, by studying mine? Um, and so I would bring particular questions to particular groups of scientists, and I would just, you know, watch what they did. And um, so some of them were able to show me, you know, the genes that I've inherited from Neanderthals. Some of them were able to show me genes that actually uh, protect me from diseases rather than raising my risk of diseases. So different, uh, different groups of scientists were able to dive into my genome and, and bring out different insights. So it was a really remarkable experience. Um, it's not something that you can just go online and purchase, but who knows, maybe in the future um, this will be something that will become more common. I certainly hope so. And like I said, we'll link to your results on the website, and I highly suggest that our listeners follow you there. Thank you so much, Carl. Thanks a lot. That was best-selling author Carl Zimmer describing his study of his own genome. We will link to that website where he de details that journey and his results on the How on Earth website. Gonna take a sentimental journey Gonna 
set my heart at ease Gonna take a sentimental journey To renew old memories You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Gia Volt is a molecular biologist at the University of Colorado who studies how the endoplasmic reticulum, let's call it the ER for short, how it's formed. The ER was long thought to be the site of synthesis of proteins and other large biologically important molecules, but work in the Volt's lab has expanded its role considerably. Good morning, Gia. Hi. Let's, nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. And let's start out by asking you to define the ER. That was always such a mouthful for my students. I think they stopped at that point. But maybe you could tell us exactly what it does. Okay. So the ER is the largest membrane-bound organelle in the cell. So organelles are the organs of the cell. It's membrane-bound, and inside it has it's hollow, so it's filled with proteins and small molecules. It, it wraps around like a skin. It wraps around the nuclear content, so it forms the nuclear envelope. So it's the barrier between the cytoplasm and the nucleus of the cell. So that's one domain of the ER. And then out of the nuclear envelope, it branches into this expansive tubular network. It looks pretty much like a spider web. It has regions that are flat, look like pancakes. It has other regions which are tubular. And it spreads into every corner of the cytoplasm, sort of, you know, just like a spider web, really. And historically, most people who think about the ER think about its role in the synthesis of uh, membrane and secreted proteins. So about a third of the proteins in most cells are synthesized on the membrane of the ER. They're inserted into the ER if they're going to be secreted or they're inserted into um, the actual membrane of the ER and trafficked to other organelles in the plasma membrane. And most studies in the ER have really focused on this function, which is considered a rough ER function. Rough ER refers to the fact that some of the ER looks like it's rough because it's studded with ribosomes that are making protein. And um, another major function of the ER that people have studied a lot over the years is uh, the synthesis of lipids. So the ER makes all... uh, the precursor of all lipids in the cell, so phospholipids, cholesterol, you know, these are important biological, you know, uh, molecules that, you know, every eukaryotic and even prokaryotic cell needs. So this is the biggest organelle in the cell. If you could take its volume and measure it, how would its volume compare to the volume of the cell? Would it be like a third of the volume of the cell? Yeah, it could be about a third of the volume of the cell, yeah, uh, if you don't include the nuclear, you know, the nucleus, right? So it wraps the, the, nucle- the nucleus, but in the cytoplasm, it's about a third of the volume, probably, of the cytoplasm. So and this- that, can, that can vary in different cell types. So for a cell whose only goal is to secrete lots and lots of proteins, like pancreatic cells, they, they're making enzymes that you use to digest food. They, they'll be much, it'll be much higher. It could be 70% of the cytoplasm is ER. It's just amazing to me that for such a big and important organelle, it gets kind of stuck to the side in textbooks and classes, and so most people don't know a whole lot about it. And I'm hoping that we can change that a little bit. We're going to link to your site and your beautiful film of um, how this acts. And so tell us a little bit about some of the new roles you've elucidated for the ER. Right. So... So if you look at a textbook image of the ER and of all organelles, um, you know, at least textbooks up until a couple years ago, 
showed the ER kind of squash like pancakes up against the nuclear envelope. And then it showed all these other organelles, the Golgi, mitochondria, endosomes, lipid droplets, just as sort of these individual little stars in the cytoplasm. Everybody was, you know, autonomous. No one was connected. And the ER, like you say, it was just sort of pushed up as this little structure, you know, very close to the nucleus. And, you know, that's even how I thought of it, you know, up until maybe, you know, 10 years ago. And then what happened is we were studying how the ER gets its shape. So we were asking, you know, a pretty basic cell biology question. How do you take a membrane, wrap it into a really complicated structure, and uh, have it perform the functions that it, that it performs? And to do this, what we wanted to start doing was actually image the structure of the ER live. Look at what it looks like in a cell at high magnification. So what we would do is we would put a fluorescent tag, uh, green fluorescent proteins from jellyfish, onto an ER protein and use a, a very good microscope to image what the ER looked like in cells live over time as it's moving. And, uh, and when we did this, we were actually quite shocked. So we saw that the ER was spread all over the cytoplasm. It had multiple very beautiful different domains. And one of the most striking things that we saw when we actually imaged it live was that it was incredibly dynamic. So when you see a textbook or a picture of the ER, everyone just shows it as sort of the static structure just sitting there. But it's moving constantly. It's just rearranging its structure. The tubules are growing out. They're fusing. They're reorganizing. So it's this sort of dynamic membrane that's just moving around all the time. And that was a real surprise to us. We, we, I mean, when I started my lab, we just really didn't think about the fact that the ER was a dynamic structure. And so the fact that we were so surprised about how dynamic it was made us think, well, why? Why is it dynamic? So why would the ER, these ER tubes be trafficking all over the cell all the time? That would take a huge amount of energy. And so what we started to do was uh, to image um, how these ER tubes move around. And we figured they were probably moving around on roads in the cytoplasm called microtubules with motors. And so what we did next was we looked at the ER in one color, labeled with the green fluorescent protein. We looked at microtubules in another color, so we put a red fluorescent protein on microtubules. And then we could watch these green ER tubules moving around on red microtubules. And, you know, that was really cool to watch over time, you know, just watching how this is happening. And then, of course, the next question is why is the ER moving around on microtubules? And so we started to think, you know, why would it want to just move around on these tracks? What could it be doing? And so we thought about, well, what else is on microtubules? And what else is on microtubules is other organelles. So other organelles are known to traffic on microtubules, like mitochondria, endosomes. And so we thought, well, I wonder if ER tubules are moving around on these microtubule tracks to make contact with other organelles that are also on those tracks. And so uh, all we had to do is go, you know, one step further. So now what we did was we would label the ER in green, we would label microtubules in red, and we would label the mitochondria with now a blue fluorescent protein and, and make a movie of the cells over time, now with three different colors, and image, you know, the position of these three different structures at the same time. And this is really beautiful Im imaging. I just want to emphasize that how spectacular it is and how 
mind-boggling it is to see the cell in motion. So let's take a quick break before you go on to tell us what you found. If you are just joining us, this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm speaking to Dr. Gia Volz about her groundbreaking work in expanding our understanding of a unique and vital component of all of our cells, the endoplasmic reticulum. That's what we're calling the ER. So let's go back to that ER, and you can tell us now about having labeled all these component parts in fluorescent colors. What did you find out about the function of the ER? Well, the first thing that that really surprised me so was that we would see uh, ER tubes wrapped around mitochondria, and mitochondria, another organelle, if you look at them in textbooks, you can see, you know, they're shown as sort of just sitting out in space, not attached to anything, even though it was shown actually many years ago by George Pilates' lab and, and a few other, uh, you know, labs that established cell biology that, that you can see contacts by electron microscopy between mitochondria and the ER. But what was surprising when we made movies was you'd see these mitochondria moving around on microtubules and they'd be wrapped in uh, ER tubes. ER tubes would be wrapped around them and these mitochondria would just be pulling ER tubes around with them wherever they went. And so I thought, wow, that's surprising. It's like the the mitochondria are are attached to the ER all the time. And so uh, why? So why do mitochondria need to be attached to these ER tubes? It's sort of like a lifeline, like an astronaut in space attached to the, the little oxygen line. So I thought, well, what could the ER be doing for the mitochondria at these contact sites between ER tubes and the mitochondria. And, um, and uh, so as we're imaging these, you know, movies of mitochondria live, you know, one of the cool things about mitochondria is they're, you know, th- these are endosymbionts, and they, they divide, and then they fuse, and um, they're very dynamic themselves. And what we could see was that ER tubes actually wrapped around the mitochondria, at like little sort of lassos or clamps and that the mitochondria were dividing where the ER tubes were wrapped around them. So it was like the ER tubes were cutting the mitochondria in half. And that was a complete shock. I mean, uh, it's not, you know, in a, in a way it was sort of serendipity. We were imaging ER dynamics, then we started imaging ER relative to mitochondria, and then we could watch these sort of cool interactions. And then what we saw was that one organelle, which was actually uh, dividing another organelle. And that was kind of a, a paradigm shift in a way because no one would have ever expected it. People, you know, don't think of the ER as having sort of that kind of, um, you know, uh, molecular tool kind of function. And so all of a sudden, everybody started thinking, gosh, what, you know, what are the functions of these contact sites? What is happening at these contact sites between different organelles? And it kind of opened up a whole new area, I think, in a way of cell biology, which is that the cell's not only made up of different organelles, but now what during, you know, through evolution probably, you now have contact sites. And that's basically bringing two organelles together now, and they can use their tool sets together now to do new functions. So if you have ER contact sites with the mitochondria, now where those two organelles are together, they can use the tools from the ER and the tools from the mitochondria to do new functions. And I should refresh our listeners' memory that mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. They're small organelles within the cell that um, capture energy from our food and allow us to store it in chemical bonds, kind of like filling a gas tank in the cell. 
And these mitochondria, again, are another really important organelle. So this interaction is is heretofore unexpected and and really quite remarkable. Yes, yeah. So it was a surprise. And so, you know, then it starts, you start asking the questions now of uh, how can a, a membrane tube of the ER wrap around a mitochondria and cut it in half? And that, that, you know, that's pretty much our focus now. One of our focuses now is to start, you know, studying that question. How is that even possible? And how is it regulated? And it's especially interesting if, if you think about... Um, you know, the importance of, I mean, mitochondrial dynamics are very important in, in neurons and in disease. They need to be uh, the right size. They need to be trafficked, for example, to the end of an axon in a neuron. And those, those processes are, are, you know, have been linked to, you know, several neurodegenerative diseases. And so one of the, the you know, important things, I think, to do now, too, is to look at the role of these contact sites in these, you know, highly differentiated cells, especially in, you know, you know, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and look at what's happening to these contacts where we know that the organelle shapes have been disrupted. And this is a really cool concept that our cells work as, as beautifully functioning units because of all these little component pieces. And then we can look at those component pieces in terms of how all those molecules interact. And so the proteins that you're studying in the ER interact with the proteins of the mitochondria. It's just like Legos in a way. Yeah, yeah, they do. And so, you know, once we saw this interaction between the ER and mitochondria and the surprising result that the ER was dividing mitochondria, we thought, gosh, how is this a general rule? Is the ER actually interacting with other organelles too that we don't think of as being bound to the ER? And is it also regulating their division? And so at this point, it was a couple of years ago, we turned to um, study uh, contacts between the ER and endosomes. So endosomes are another very abundant organelle. They're really important because they turn over um, receptors on the plasma membrane that um, activate cell proliferation. So you need functional endosomes to downregulate cell division and downregulate you know, during diseases like cancer, basically. And these endosomes, they've always been shown in textbooks and everywhere as trafficking into the cell and microtubules, but uh, people didn't consider them as being ER-associated organelles. And just like we did for the mitochondria, we started labeling, you know, the ER in green, endosomes in another color, red, and asked, are they also attached to the ER? And sure enough, we could see these amazing images of, endosomes, you know, hundreds of endosomes in the cytoplasm attached to this tubular ER network, and it looked like, you know, flies in a spider web. It was really quite amazing. <laughs> and they're just moving all over the place, and they're just pulling ER tubes everywhere with them where they go. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's pretty cool. So it's, it's pretty fun because now I can I go out and I give talks, and I can, you know, I can show the ER in green, and I can show endosomes in red, and then I label the mitochondria in blue, and people are really surprised. You know, you can show a live movie inside of a cell at really high resolution, and you know, people are surprised that these organelles are all interacting with the ER and, and, and how beautiful the inside of the cell is. It and is. So think, it's truly you know, beautiful. I people excited about, you know, cell biology in general. And is and, this, uh, I'm sorry, is this something that 
people were not able to do until recently to make these films of of intracellular movement and function? Is there a new technology that's come online recently that allows you to do that? You know, I think that um, people have been making to some. I mean, people have been making movies of cells uh, and of you know individual components in cells, but people weren't. Not many people were actually imaging more than one thing at one time. So people would watch an organelle like a mitochondria on a microtubule and take a picture. Mm, but they weren't of... watching multiple different major components in different colors at the same time live because they weren't really thinking about that question. That wasn't a question yet. Do, do organelles interact until, you know, right, you know right. how and when and why? Um, People were looking at contacts by electron microscopy, you know, since George Pilati back in the, you know, 50s. Right. But they weren't looking at them live. And, and I think that, you know, funny, that often live. And so one of the things we just basically, I mean, everything has improved. So microscopes have improved. Lasers have gotten stronger so that we can image these colors brighter. And, um, but... I guess part of the reason that, that our images got pretty good was, in a way, um, I was not trained as a cell biologist or a microscopist. And so when I set up my lab, I needed to buy a microscope. And I just uh, kept asking the, the microscope guy to <laughs> make it look better. <laughs> I didn't really think about what the limitations of the resolution of the microscope should be. I was trained as a biochemist. And I, I didn't know I shouldn't be able to see these things very well. And yes. so we just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it because I, I guess I just uh, didn't know it. I shouldn't be able to see it that well. Yeah, it's great to come into a field not knowing what you can't do because then you go ahead and try to do it. Yeah, and so we've had the same microscope, you know, for 10 years. But oh, wow. <laughs> surprising is that it just our images get better every year. And part of it is the way you culture the cells. Part of it is the the way you, you know, put the DNA into them to express the protein. Part of it is, uh, you know, how you culture them, the, the laser intensity. Um, it's just, a, you know, it's, a, it's just sort of optimizing the conditions. Um, right, right. And, uh, right. and actually just doing the experiment. So that's yeah. now, now people know that they can see all this stuff. Yeah. So they, they're looking. Well, hopefully our listeners will see it too and, and be enthusiastic as I am about the ER. Thank you so much, Guy. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Sure. Thank you. That was Dr. Gia Voltz from the University of Colorado describing her new discoveries about the structure and function of that amazing component of our cells, the endoplasmic reticulum. Check out her beautiful videos showing the ER in action. We link to it on the How on Earth website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Les Brown Orchestra and Doris Day. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and links to our interviewees this morning. And you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.